Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel. Well, the Proverbs tell us that pride only breeds quarrels. Proverbs 13, 10. And that's really what you see a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you read through the book, uh, you see a lot of pride that's leading to quarrels. And you can kind of measure how much pride there is in a relationship by how much quarreling there is. And the main problem in Corinth was this issue of pride. And so just hear a couple of these verses that will lead to 1 Corinthians 13 of what Paul's reacting to when he lays out what love is. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's appealing to them that brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I appeal to you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you might be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, underneath this quarreling, we're told in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that they were puffed up in favor of one against another. So they like certain gifts of certain individuals over others. You probably recall Paul saying that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so the remedy for Paul is to tell them the only command in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians is to consider your calling. Consider your calling. Have you considered your calling? Did God call me because I was noble, mighty, strong, powerful? Or did he call, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, the weak, the low, and the despised in the world's eyes? How did you get into the kingdom? Who did you impress? You see, if that wasn't enough to deflate these overinflated Corinthians, and we're naturally inflated, and you know we are, we are here to pump ourselves up, is literally what we are in ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? For what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what Paul's saying is everything you have is a gift from God. All Everything is borrowed. And so how can you boast in yourself when God's the one who gets the glory for anything good? And so this perspective is helpful to deflate us, radically humble us, because we're naturally haughty towards others. We're puffed up. And this puffiness and this pride is the big barrier to love. And this sermon this morning is about removing the, the barriers to love. It's the biggest problem in marriage. It's the biggest problem in the church. You hear often in you know, marriage, you know, he just won't listen. She never owns up that she's part of the problem. And I'm sick of going to counseling and being told that it's all on me. I'm not going to do that anymore. He never apologizes. She just doesn't respect me. I'm going through this with a, my, one of my closest friends. Uh, we're really good friends in college. He was in my wedding. I was in his. I've mentioned him before. And he's now living in a trailer. And he's left his wife. And he's telling me he's not, not going to go through counseling again. Can't stand hearing that she won't own up to anything. And he's just sick of it. 
And there's a lot of pride in this. And then he's trying to tell me scripturally that he's got grounds for divorce. And I say, listen, you, it, it doesn't look good, but don't try to defend it biblically. You want out of your marriage, but don't try to twist the scriptures to say you have a reason. You don't have a biblical reason. These are difficult things. Um, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, some of the most familiar verses in the whole Bible, next to like Psalm 23. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Ouch. I titled the message Barriers to Love because this is what has to be weeded out of the garden or there'll be no fruit these two particular barriers we're going to look at this morning, we're mainly just kind of, kind of camp out on love does not envy or boast. And Paul uses these words envy and boast and arrogant and rude, but they're all essentially different manifestations of a haughty spirit, manifestation of pride. John MacArthur says jealousy is wanting what someone else has, and bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we do have. Jealousy puts others down, bragging builds us up. Both are bad news. And so, but ultimately, even under envy is pride. And so, uh, the classic uh, treatment on this, there's a couple of classics, but C.S. Lewis is in Mere Christianity, bears repeating. And he says that according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. That unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that pride, that the more pride one had, the more he disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to, is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? or refuse me, or take any notice of me, or shove the oar in, or patronize me, or show off. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I want to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. There's an interesting comment. Now, I want you, now I want, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While all the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next man. We may say that the proud are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. That's why I say pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. And so this is where envy is really a manifestation of pride because envy works best at close range. We don't envy those that are way above us. It's those that are just slightly perceived ahead of us, those who are who we envy. Envy breeds on proximity. Kierkegaard wrote The Sickness Unto Death, and he said that envy is a small-town sin. It's a byproduct of living so close to a set of other people that one is constantly 
tempted to make leveling comparisons. And that's why someone once said that contentment is making $10 more a month than your brother-in-law. That's what contentment is. You see, some sins don't need other people. You don't need anybody else to be a glutton. But envy always takes two. It wasn't until Eve had a second child that envy entered the world. And no sooner than it did that Cain murdered Abel because he was jealous of his brother. Benjamin Franklin once said to find out a girl's faults, praise her to her girlfriends. And jealousy will come to life and envy. Jonathan Edwards said that it's pride that is the great root and source of envy. It's because of the pride of men's heart that they have such a burning desire to be distinguished and to be superior to all others in honor and prosperity, which makes them so uneasy and dissatisfying in seeing others above them. And so if you're wondering kind of where this hits home, well, I think uh, we can be envious of a lot of things. But particularly in marriage, I think there's a temptation to, to be envious and envy can kind of get a, a root, this weed that can get into the garden and begin to, to have its way in a marriage where you begin to be envious of somebody else's marriage. Or you begin to be envious of what you imagine to be a great marriage. And now you have this fancy in your head of this is what this couple must have or they perceived have. And now you are comparing the rest of your life through that filter. And now there's this bitter jealousy that starts to settle in. Another way is we get, the jealousy can often be of the other person's schedule of your spouse. You see, there's this natural thing called division of labor in marriage. We talked about it in the marriage Sunday school class. It was just briefly mentioned this morning about this division of labor. And if one spouse perceives that they are doing more than the other spouse, that I'm doing most of the chores here around the house, and you're getting to work and spend time with these clients and have these nice lunches over at these nice restaurants, and I'm home changing diapers, heating up microwave stuff from day three, and you're enjoying the good life, or flip it around, and I'm off working my tail off at work, and I come home, and you haven't even done the laundry, and there's nothing in the cupboards, and what are you, what are you doing? And then there's this frustration that happens. And sometimes the frustration is understandable, but sometimes there's a competition, and the Bible says do nothing out of rivalry is really what Philippians 2 is getting at, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but the idea is really out of rivalry. Well, often there can be a rivalry. And... Uh, if there's a sense of one spouse comes home from work and asks the other, what did you get done today? Ooh. What did you get done today? Well, I was here spending quality time with the kids. What do you mean, what did I get done today? You should try staying home sometime and seeing what a picnic it is around here, you know? And now, and now the gloves are on, the mouthpiece is in, and there's ding-ding for round one. All because a question started of what did you get done today? because it was a a competition. James says in James chapter three, a reminder to us, a comparison of what is wisdom and what is demonic and not wisdom. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, 
Let him show in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. You know, don't boast about it. Don't just say, well, that's the way I am. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we have a contrast here between chaos and disorder and peace. What do you have in your home? What do you have in your business? There's a contrast. And the contrast comes down to, are you bitterly jealous? Is there envy that's at root here? Selfish ambition and jealousy? Or is there this peaceable and gentleness? Is there humility that's full of mercy and good fruits? Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica says that charity rejoices in our neighbor's good while envy grieves over it. That's an interesting contrast. Can you rejoice in your neighbor's good or do you grieve over it? When your competition does well, when your spouse does well, maybe your spouse is making a little bit more than you, Can you rejoice? I hope so. But shade and fruit is this interesting word that I learned when we were doing the seven deadly sins study. And shade and fruit is this word that is this sibling of envy. And shade and fruit means a perverse delight in the failures and misfortunes of others. It's the sin that prohibits us from rejoicing at, at others and actually rejoicing at their failures. I do find it interesting that in our different schools of economics, they're often driven by, unchecked by sinful motivations. So capitalism, without being checked, can often lead to to greed. But communism, on the other hand, is an outworking of envy and schadenfreude. And so conservatives have often noticed from Tokyville to Richard John Newhouse and others have said, look, These demands for justice and equality are often nothing more than expressions of envy. So think about that when you listen to these different messages. What are they really getting at in their heart? I heard of a story of a guy that was so bent on bringing down his wife, this bitter jealousy that had shriveled down and was now into shade and fruit. And when they settled in divorce court, they just settled they'd split everything 50-50. He sold everything he had at rock bottom price. He sold his car for a hundred bucks just so he could have the satisfaction of giving his wife 50 bucks for the car. That's shade and fruit. I mean, that is just, you want to talk about hatred, just envy now is so ugly that Socrates called, called jealousy and this envy the ulcer of the soul. You see, and you wonder, well, where's... Where's that in the Bible? Well, it was jealousy that caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. It was out of jealousy that Joseph's brothers threw him into the pit and sold him as as a slave. It was jealousy that Saul first heard after David had killed Goliath. And then the next chapter, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, great chapter to read. Look at the contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan. 
Saul hears the women singing to one another. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. That's the end of the story for Saul. I mean, it is, it is flaps never come on. I mean, it is just push that thing forward. Let's drive it to the ground. And it says that a harmful spirit came upon him. And he found a spear, Saul a spear. And the next day he sees David and he begins to hurl spears at him because the women were singing a little more praises to him. Are you seeing a pattern yet? Why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Read the first four verses of chapter 6 of Daniel. There's 120, and then there's three, and then Daniel was going to be put as number one over the 120 and the three. Boy, that went over well. His promotion was going to lead to throwing into the lion's. You see, jealousy is this horrible thing. I mean, you've heard me tell the story before the time that I was working as a waiter, and I discovered this firsthand with my friend. I was not a very good waiter. And my friends came to, to wait at my, uh, when I was working at the Olive Garden, and they wrote a comment card, and they wrote the most glowing comment card that had ever been written. Thank you, Max. The lady, the manager gets the card in the back, and she calls the huddle. A team meeting, everybody. She brings all the waiters, the, even the host, the cooks over here. She reads the comment card and says, and this is Charlie. And I was like, oh no. I was instantly hated by everybody there. They hated me. And I mean, I mean, it wasn't two minutes later, I had a spoon in the soup, and I was right next to this lady, and she grabbed the spoon and pulled it out of the soup. You never put your spoon in the soup. Don't you know anything? And, and the cooks wouldn't bring me food because I had been elevated, and they knew he's really not that good. So we're going to show how bad he is by making his food delivered last. It was not a good, I came home to my friends and said, thank you for filling out that card, you know. I was so angry at those guys. You've made my life miserable for elevating me. So that's how this often works. Your promotion at work or your promotion can often work to your great misfortune, can it? Because people may not, all of a sudden, your friends all of a sudden become enemies because there's a heart problem. Jealousy led to the elder brother, heard music and dancing, and he could not go in. Wouldn't even go near the place. Couldn't stand it. It was jealousy that led to the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Jesus drew crowds. Jesus did miracles. He healed people. And people were attracted to him. And they saw that he spoke with authority. And the scribes and the Pharisees were envious and jealous. And they said, the whole world is going after him. We got to get rid of him or we're going to lose our whole, we're going to lose everything. We got to kill him. So how do you respond this morning when God's blessing someone else's marriage better than yours? When someone else gets promoted rather than you, when someone else gets pregnant and it's not you, and someone else gets married and it's not you, and someone else gets a new car and the new house and the new iPhone and whatever, and on and on and on. This hits home. And Jonathan Edwards says, if you look at the beginning of your bulletin, where he boils this down, he says, the spirit of envy is the very contrite of the spirit of heaven 
where all rejoice in the happiness of others. That will be heaven, won't it? And it's the very spirit of hell itself, which is a most hateful spirit, and one that feeds itself upon the ruin and prosperity and happiness of others, on which account some have compared envious persons to caterpillars, which delight most in devouring the most flourishing trees and plants. And as the envious disposition is most hateful in itself, so it is most uncomfortable and uneasy to its possessor. It is the disposition of the devil and partakes of his likeness. So it's the disposition of hell and partakes of its misery. And he's getting that from Proverbs 14.30, which says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Are your bones rotting this morning, or are, you, are your heart thriving? Let me give you two positive stories. Neither of these are Christian stories, but sometimes you can see in culture, sometimes people get it, and sometimes people get it better than the church, unfortunately. Uh, the first one is, I, I like this particular TV show called The Voice. Anybody watch The Voice? It's, it's not the greatest show in the world, but I happen to like the show, and I watch it with our kids. And, and so two weeks ago, I'm watching the show, and Alicia Keys is this incredible musician, beautiful voice, and there's a girl that, the way the show works is, I'm sure you've probably seen it, but you, you are seeing the, hearing the person blind. Your, your back is to them, and they have to turn the chair if they like them. So you're not basing your judgment on, on their looks, but solely on their voice, okay? So the girl, they, they, the girl that they had interviewed had basically idolized Alicia Keys her whole life. And so she, from earliest Early on in life, she wanted to be like Alicia Keys, so she would sing Alicia Keys' song, and she learned how to play the piano at 13 years old, and she was playing Alicia Keys' song. So when she sings a song on The Voice, she decides that she is going to sing an Alicia Keys song. I mean, you want to talk about taking a risk, picking one of the four chairs and singing one of their songs. So she sings her song, and Alicia Keys, bam, she's the first one to turn around. She loved it, and she is just loving this girl's voice. She is not, a spirit of rivalry has not come upon her. There is not an envy. There is just, she is just impressed with this girl. So afterwards, I mean, the girl is like just blown away that she's being noticed by the person she's idolized her whole life. And Alicia Keys just... She is like, at the end, they, they, if the chairs turn, I, I think there were several chairs that had turned, they have to pick who's going to be their coach. And it was kind of humorous. They're even laughing among themselves, like, how could we pick, how is anybody, how is this lady going to pick anybody else but Alicia Keys? Because Alicia Keys is like, told her, you sing that song better than I do. And I have to have you on my team. And she began to sing to her that you must choose me. And I thought, now that is amazing. To me, that is a picture of like God's love for us. And obviously the illustration breaks down at some point, but he loves us so much that it's like, why would we choose anything else that would be a rival with that kind of love that would sing over us and delight over us? And so of course, what do you think the girl chose? Of course she chose Alicia Keys because she wasn't envious she delighted in this young lady. Well, here's another story. 
and I've shared this story before, but not as in detail as this, but Jackie Robinson, if you've seen the movie 42, and if not, you should see the movie, definitely. He joined the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. He was the first African-American baseball player to be granted the opportunity to move from the Negro League to the Major Leagues. And unfortunately, this move was met with a lot of hostility. And so when Jackie Robinson uh, you know, came to his team, they didn't all love him. Matter of fact, um, I mean, Pee Wee Reese, who's kind of the hero of this story, um, the first black man that he'd ever shaken hands with was Jackie Robinson. He had grown up in segregated Louisville, Kentucky. He'd never interacted with a black person his whole life. And so when a reporter asked Reese if he was threatened that Jackie would take his position of shortstop, Pee Wee Reese said, if he can take my job, he's entitled to it. And he had a good spirit about it. But the rest of the team actually started a petition. And if you saw the movie, I mean, they, they were going to have a boycott, and they, th- they threatened that, you know, they were going to sit out if, if uh, Jackie was allowed to play. Well, Pee Wee Reese stood up and refused to sign the petition. Well, then on their first road trip as a team, 1947, Jackie Robinson was heckled by fans in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the hecklers tor- turned to Jackie and to the other white infielders, and they began to not only heckle Jackie, but to heckle the other infielders. And they said, how can you play ball with this nigger? And at that point, Pee Wee Reese, who was playing shortstop, walked over to first base and put his arm around him. And 40,000 fans got quiet. He hushed the crowd by going to him and putting his arm and showing solidarity and support when he was being heckled. And so when at Pee Wee Reese's funeral, Joe Black, who was another Major League Baseball player, Black Pioneer said, Pee Wee helped make my boyhood dream come true to play in the majors, the World Series. When Pee Wee reached out to Jackie, all of us in the Negro League smiled and said it was the first time that a white guy had accepted us. And when I finally got to Brooklyn, I went to Pee Wee and said, black people love you. When you touched Jackie, you touched all of us. With Pee Wee, it was number one on his uniform and number one on his heart. Now, you can think about this analogy and you can say Jesus traveled a little further from shortstop to first base. You see, Jesus could not have possibly been on a higher plane. The Bible says the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. He has to condescend to be in heaven. He's that glorious. And it would be amazing condescension if Jesus stooped to the level of an angel, but he didn't stop there. Hebrews 2 says it's not angels that he helps but descendants of Abraham. And as Michael Reeves says in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, he says, outlandish as it may sound, but we may say it, no umbilical cord of connection, no redemption. Think about that. If Jesus didn't have a cord that had to be cut, you can't be saved. Jesus becomes a human being. He fully God, takes on humanity forever. And when we get to heaven, he will have a human body forever. Jesus couldn't have gone any lower. It would be an amazing stoop to become a human being and to be a king, but he was no king. 
He wasn't even treated like a citizen. No Roman citizen gets a cross, but Jesus got a cross. He gets two thieves as his companions. He was obedient to death, death on a cross. Why would Jesus do this? It certainly wasn't because he was powerless. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. He laid down his life because he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And that's what we are. We are sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the irony of Philippians 2, this great passage that tells us about Jesus, is that we're just the opposite. We being very nature man, considered equality with God something to be grasped. We made ourselves something and exalted ourselves, becoming disobedient to death, and therefore God humbled us to the lowest place. You see, Jesus reverses everything so that you could come and have fellowship eternally with Jesus and with one another. He restores a relationship that's broken. Martin Luther tells the story of a king, and the king is representing Jesus, and the king is married to a poor girl girl of ill repute, representing us. And at their wedding, she would say to him, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And in that that moment, she shares with him all her debts and her shame. And the king says in reply, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you, at which the wretched girl becomes the queen, and all the kingdom is hers. And just so the great bridegroom has taken all our sin, our death, our judgment, and he shares with us his life in perfect righteousness, and he who was poor has now made, became poor, has given us his riches. It's the great marriage swap, what Luther called the joyful exchange. Christ becomes one with his people so that all that is theirs is his and and his is theirs. And so as we come to this table, it's communion. We are now partakers of the divine nature to have fellowship with the living God. Rejoice. We are loved. He wants you. Why would you choose any other rival? Give your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're dearly loved, and we thank you. Root out this envy that would rot our bones. Guard us from it. Give us humble hearts. Let's see what you have done. May we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.